0: Really what you're arguing is these contracts should be reviewed by legal counsel.
1: Even if it's a small amount. So the standard is what is the risk of exposure? Let's look at this as a liability issue. If there's a risk of exposure that somebody could get hurt, that contract has to be reviewed and rather than just looking at the contract price. So as I said, my entire focus on what should be reviewed has changed over the years. It's not necessarily a money grab by the association's corporate council. It is putting our boards of directors in a position to meet their fiduciary duties.
0: Most people are not equipped to understand the seemingly endless facets of an HOA. That's why we're here to help you become uncommonly prepared to serve your HOA. Whether you're a board member or a manager, join us in the uncommon area. Welcome to The Uncommon Area, I am Matthew Holbrook and this episode is all about what you need to know about contracts and homeowners associations. And here to discuss that with me today is Sandra Gottlieb of Swettleson and & Gottlieb and appreciate you coming back and being a part of another episode. Of course, um, thank you
1: so much, I'm glad to be here.
0: So. We need to get to the point on this one pretty quickly because people are going to fall asleep if we just say we're talking about contracts and, um, you're going to argue and I'm buying in that there are some pretty interesting and helpful things that we need to talk about relating to contracts. Um, so I guess to start with a homeowner's association is reviewing and receiving contracts all the time. You have pool contracts, you have roofing contracts, you have management contracts, um, what would be some general guidelines that you would tell board members and managers that they should be thinking about when it comes to just all these contracts that come their way?
1: So probably the most simplistic thing is to just think of things that cause protection for the association, Um, waivers, indemnity, uh, what types of protections the association has for liabilities created by others. I think the management contract really is the exception to the rule. And that is my rule for associations that are at least a hundred units or larger is have your own contract. You shouldn't constantly be paying for your corporate counsel to write a new contract to protect your interests. If you're gonna send out an RFP, sent request for proposal, send it out with the contract. So the vendor knows this is what you're going to have to sign in order to be awarded this contract.
0: All right. So three things I'm taking out of what you just said. One, you used the word indemnification. I want to come back to that. Secondly, you said management companies kind of fall into their own category. We're going to push that to the end of our conversation and we'll talk about, that seems self-serving, but we're going to talk about why management companies fall into a little bit of a different category. And then thirdly, you talked about um, that associations for their vendors should have their own standard contracts. So I want to kind of Take one and three and we'll deal with the management company last. Perfect. So use the word indemnification. I've been in this business long enough to know how important that word is and how few people actually understand what that word means. So talk to me about when we say indemnification,
1: what are we talking about? It means that we want the association to be protected for the actions of the vendor. And it doesn't have to raise to the standard of gross negligence. It just has them doing the job, pursuant to the scope of work, and if something goes south, that the association will be protected for any liability that occurs as a result of their actions. So
0: I am a, um, a, a concrete repair vendor, and I'm out. Um, pouring concrete to repair sidewalks and I have some materials left out and a resident comes walking through, trips, falls, they're injured. They turn around, they sue the association because of the work that I'm in the process of doing. Um, And let's say the contract has an indemnity clause that says that I will indemnify the association. Then in that case, that would obligate me to provide defense for the association
1: it would and and the contract would also say do we get to use the association's own counsel? do we get- are uh, we required to use the vendor's counsel unless there's a conflict of interest? So if we're pointing fingers at each other, a conflict is created and we would make a demand for separate counsel for the association. Otherwise, if we're joined at the hip in the defense, it really doesn't matter who is providing the defense as long as it's a competent defense. But that's the exact example of why indemnity is so important. I sort of have a golden rule on this, if I could just take a lead for a second. Yeah. So at the beginning of my career, I used to think it was contract amount. So I would say to an association who didn't want to spend the money, if you have the money to do this contract again, without it really creating havoc in your association, meaning if somehow you get stiffed, then go ahead, go, make sure that you get as many protections as you can. And then we had a situation many years ago where an association did not provide us with a copy of a gutter contract, simple $800 contract, and signed it thought it was a proposal, didn't realize that that meant it was a contract. And the employee showed up, they said that everybody working for them would be an employee to work, and was on the roof for less than 10 seconds before he fell off and became a quadriplegic. That contract had a full indemnity that the association was giving the contractor, not the other way around. In that contract, it also said they were not going to use Employees. The person who performed that work was somebody that was picked up to do day labor at um, one of the large stores that sell um, goods for um, all kinds of construction work for homes and businesses. And a uh, person did not even know, the contractor did not even know that person's name. In litigation, the association wound up having to defend the contractor and uh, the special assessment on all of the homeowners uh, resulted in three homeowners losing their units. Mm-hmm. This is before that special assessments were included uh, in the H06 policies. So it's a very, very important concept to recognize, and you hit right on the most important, which is the indemnity and what protections that gives the association as the client. So one, a
0: contractor is going to have a, uh, an incentive that they want indemnity language in the contract, but they want the association to indemnify them. And you just outlined an example where that's not going to work out well for the association. It needs to be the other way around. The contractor needs to be indemnifying the association. And um, so that's something that managers, board members need to be watching for, but really what you're arguing is these contracts should be reviewed by legal counsel even if it's a small amount?
1: Even if it's a small amount. So the standard is what is the risk of exposure? Let's look at this as a liability issue. If there's a risk of exposure that somebody could get hurt, so anything above six feet where somebody is getting on a ladder or a stairwell, that contract has to be reviewed and rather than just looking at the contract price. So as I said, my entire focus on what should be reviewed has changed over the years based on that catastrophic loss that happened to this association. Yeah.
0: So answer the the person who's watching this or listening to this episode and they're like, well, of course you're going to say that, Sandra, you're the attorney, it's self-serving, you wanna have everything reviewed. Um, How would you respond to, to that person?
1: So looking at a small contract is always a loss for me because I can't charge for what it costs to really make sure my client is protected. They get all of my years of expertise and my staff members' years of expertise. And sometimes I just review it because I've already stated they should all look for it and I know they're not gonna pay more than an hour of my time. So it is not a, it's not necessarily a money grab by the association's corporate counsel. It is putting our boards of directors in a position to meet their fiduciary duties.
0: Yeah. So then that takes us to, uh, you proposed that an association should have kind of a standard contract. Um, now I want to push back on that a little bit. I see the logic. I see why an attorney would say that, um, practically speaking, um, having managed associations a long time myself, um, I know that it doesn't work out real well to get vendors to comply Um, if I, if they, they send us their standard contract and we say, no, we want to use this one. Um, that becomes messy. Uh, I'm wondering, and so I'll just, I'll put that out as point one, point two, maybe as an alternative, maybe that you could respond to. Um, and I'm not even sure, I guess I'm making this up as I go. Is there some type of an attachment to a contract that could be standardized? um, so that a a -hmm. vendor could use their own contract and the association could say,
1: yeah, but we're just adding this to it. So as to point number one, it can be messy. That's one of the reasons that I suggest that we prepare a contract or whoever the corporate counsel is, and that goes out with the RFP. So there's no surprises. So a smaller um, entity who may not want to incur the expense of having that contract reviewed will pass on submitting a bid for that contract.
0: All right. So the, uh, the reality though, when we're talking about an $800 gutter cleaning, right? There's probably not going to be an RFP, and for that size of of work, there may not even be a request for multiple bids. It might just be, hey, vendor that we work with all the time, send us your contract and we'll we'll approve it. So how does that work in that type of scenario?
1: So then you bring up your point number two, and I have an addendum of 11 items that uh, say that says, notwithstanding anything to the contrary in the underlying agreement the following provisions will apply. So if there's any disconnect between the two provisions, the addendum wins. The addendum wins. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that can be done. So that might be, so that maybe what an association would want to do practically then is go to their corporate council and say, we'd like two things from you. We'd like one, a standard contract that we could use with an RFP process for Um, landscape services, for painting of the whole community, for re-roofing, and we're just going to use the same contract and we attach scope and specifications to that. Um, Then you're not having to go back and get that reviewed by council every time. You've got a standard version that you're using. Option number two that you're asking um, of council would be, can you provide me with a basic addendum that we can attach to smaller contracts and any projects that come up that we're not doing an RFP process for? that can just be attached to an existing vendor contract.
1: Exactly. So most attorneys that will do something like that, and this would apply to us as well, um, will say, but you can't change anything in this document because as you know, as lawyers, every word counts and means something. So if you start moving things around in that short 11 item addendum, it really could impact other provisions in that addendum. And so you just send that off with the cover letter and it allows management to take direction from the board. And you always want the board to say this to management, use this with those contracts so that management has its own protections in not acting unilaterally, but taking the direction from the board on these contract matters.
0: Yeah. So kind of to summarize very quickly on this portion before we move to the next, the next uh, topic related to contracts, um, indemnification is an important, Feature in these contracts, associations want to be indemnified by the contractor, not the other way around. Um, you, if at all possible, want to work with your council to have a standardized contract that you can send out with RFPs. You want an addendum that you never touch that can be attached to smaller projects. And I think your overarching input—you can tell me if I have this wrong—but um, it's not necessarily the the dollar amount of a contract that is going to speak to the potential liability of the association. It's the scope of work that's to be done. And depending on what that scope is, even if it's a very small contract that could lead to significant liability.
1: Absolutely. And that's the example that I gave is very, very tragic, but it really was enlightening as to yeah. how we look at contracts. Yeah.
0: So management companies. Um, I asked you the question that uh, that seems to be self-serving for uh, an HOA attorney. Yeah, let's talk
1: about self-serving. Now (laughs) we're
0: talking about our contract. So um, it seems to be self-serving for me to say, yeah, everybody else, you want to be treated in one way, but for the HOA management company, it's in a different category and the contract is going to look a little bit different. Um, Maybe you can address... Why is that? What's different about an HOA management contract compared to everybody else and what might need to be considered differently?
1: So first of all, I do buy into that with obviously amendments to meet each association's individual needs uh, and both parties' tolerance levels. But the reason that it's different is that we have a very unique industry. And the managing agents in our industry are given indemnity for their actions short of normally gross negligence and intentional actions. And that's based on a body of law, principal agency law. And the managing agent is taking direction from the principal, which is the board of directors for the association, and carrying out those acts within a defined scope of what you can do, building on those instructions. So that the reason you get indemnity is as if the principal was carrying out that act as opposed to you as the agent. And that's really why you, as opposed to other vendors, would be entitled to that indemnity.
0: Yeah. So to um, put it in, in other words, the manager or the management company is acting as an agent on behalf of the association, on behalf of the board of directors. And so as long as they are acting within that scope and according to the direction that they've been given to reasonably manage the association, um, claims that come up against the, against the management company um, as the agent are really claims against the association and therefore the association would provide indemnity for that.
1: Right, so following your line of thinking, absent gross negligence. Correct. uh, Yes, it would be as if the association, and we do get all the time people get it wrong. They just sue the management company and they don't understand that we're just tendering it to the association for coverage.
0: Yeah, so you go back to the example we were talking about with the concrete vendor previously, Um, somebody trips Falls, And let's say that contract is set up um, properly that the concrete vendor is indemnifying the association, but a homeowner comes along and who do they, that trips and falls, who do they name? They name potentially the concrete Mm -hmm. vendor, the association, and the management company. Right. Um, And uh, if there's not that type of indemnification language between the association and the management company. The management company could get pulled into having to provide a defense for something that the association's vendor did. Correct. Um, So that would be one of the reasons. Um, I think the other reason that doesn't get addressed um, often enough, and maybe you can respond to this, um, anything that happens in a homeowner's association could come back on the, the management company as the agent. Um, there's some raised sidewalk someplace and there's no other vendor involved Um, and somebody trips and falls. They're hurt. They're injured by that. An argument could be made management company. You should have known about this raised sidewalk and somebody tripped and fell on that. And so management company, you're responsible for that. Um, The challenge is, I would argue, and again, you can respond to this, but I would argue as the, as the management company is, if you're managing a community of 2000 homes and you have 20 miles of sidewalks and roadways, um, it's not going to be a reasonable expectation that the manager is going to know about every possible lip or something that that comes up in that regard. And the association's insurance is written specifically to address and protect the association and the management company for those types of of situations. And so there's an insurance consideration there that it's already built into how the association's insurance is going to function.
1: Right. And I think that that element of being built into the association's policy is based on the premise of known or should have known. Right. And if you have as much square footage as you were just referring to, how could you have possibly have known? Now, if the facts show differently, you have 17 complaints, right. people have tripped, yep. one sprained ankle, one broken finger when they fell, a chipped elbow, and you still did nothing about it, and that now was you within your scope. Now you have gross negligence
0: scope? or willful misconduct.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And, and that would be beyond the indemnification.
1: And that's the carrier's gonna say, you guys are on your own, and then the question is, are you going to go after the association when possibly you had some malfeasance in that process?
0: Yeah. And that's the, that's where understanding that gross negligence, willful misconduct or intentional act uh, comes into play in this, that as the management company taking that same scenario, again, if you have this laundry list of um, emails and communications and incidents that have happened around this and the management company did nothing on it And maybe add to it, the board has given specific instruction to the management company, get this addressed, and the management company didn't do anything about it. Now you can see that the management company could potentially have liability, especially if a certain amount of time had gone by in in that. Um, So um, again, it's that, I think it's the the, the agency relationship that that creates a little bit of a different dynamic of the management company.
1: Exactly. But the obligation for the managing agent really is the same as it is for for me or any other vendor that's providing service to the association, we're supposed to put their needs above our own. that's in our contracts and it's Mm -hmm. in our performance requirements for whatever degree or certification, uh, that each one of us have in our particular industries and what our obligations are to our mutual clients.
0: Yeah. Well, is there anything else, um, I'm sure we could talk for a very long time on contracts and homeowners associations, but is there anything else that comes to mind that you think would be important that uh, that we cover here?
1: I think that I'd like... To Just as a reminder for our board members to know that, and maybe management as well, a proposal is a contract. And sometimes I will be at meetings and I'll see a managing agent say, oh, here's a proposal I just need you guys to sign off on so we can do this. And no one really sees that as a contract that requires the review. And I'm glancing over and I see that's $17,000 worth of tar, I need for some sort of protections and I lament on what if I wasn't at that meeting? What if I didn't see that in action? So proposal equals contract.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. You, as soon as you sign the proposal, now it's become a contract. Exactly. Um,
1: exactly. And so, and that's hard, especially when it's one page, people do not think that that could possibly be binding and there are a number of things that are really important in contracts. We talked about indemnity, warranties for work. Uh, Another and a final closing comment is when materials are drop shipped to the association, we always take the position until they're incorporated in the work. It's the contractor, not the association's responsibility. But if you don't have that in the contract, it will not, it doesn't just happen. And that will be a major fight in that contract. And it could have implications of tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of liability.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, as we, uh, as we kind of bring this in for a landing, um, if you can indulge me and I get to play attorney for just a minute, which is a dangerous thing to do <laughs> in this situation. So, but I'm doing that with a parachute because you're going to fix anything I mess up here. Okay. But I do think you, you raised, you raised this idea of signing a proposal and that becomes a contract. So it might be helpful just to define what makes a contract. What, what is a contract? Um, so, um, I have uh, pointed out to people regularly, and now you can tell me if I, if I get any of this wrong, but you need to have an offer, you need to have an acceptance, there needs to be cons- some consideration, some form of payment or something that benefits both parties, um, and there needs to be capacity, there needs to be legal standing to be able to do that contract. So if we were to look at this scenario of a, a proposal being given to an association, the proposal's the offer, you sign that, you now have an acceptance. Assuming you're a board member, you have capacity. You have legal standing, and that the board has has, has given authorization for that. Um, and there's consideration. There's seventeen thousand dollars or whatever it is in that case. Uh, that makes that a contract. Correct. Um, And then just taking that one step further, there's nothing in that offer, acceptance, consideration, capacity that has anything to do with anything having to be in writing. All that the writing does is it verifies that those four elements were met, but that could all happen verbally as well.
1: It could. The obligation could still be there. And that's something that is really important for our board member viewers to really understand is that if they enter into a verbal agreement that's a contract they are going to be bound to that if that contractor goes in reliance on that agreement spends money to service that contract the association will likely have liability
0: yeah so where that comes up and the reason I brought that up is you've got a board member walking with the landscape contractor the landscaper says yeah I can put in you know, 10 trees, $1,500 a piece here, 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 and here. And the board member says, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? Um, You have an offer from the landscaper to put in the trees. Um, The board member says, okay, do that. That's the acceptance. You have the consideration is the $1,500 and the trees being planted and the capacity, the contractor has a reason to believe that you are acting as a board member and that you have the capacity to give that approval. Um, and maybe that hasn't gone back to the rest of the board, to the management or anybody else, the association could be bound just based on that conversation to a contract.
1: So you can't see, but the hair right now is standing up on my arm because that happens all the time. I know it does. So that well-written contract will actually say that we need approval from the board. So that vendor can't rely unless they have a signed um, change order to their underlying agreement or a copy of the executive session or general session minutes with that authority. And we put that in the contract so we don't have to look at, and forgive me for saying this, a rogue board member who might be creating that liability without the rest of the board members knowing that was before the board and it could really wind up binding the association. All right,
0: yeah. So just uh, to clarify that one step further, what you you are suggesting is Mm -hmm. you have a, in this scenario that I just painted, you have a... A landscape contractor. And so you have a contract with the landscaper for overall landscape maintenance. In that contract, it specifies, Mr. Landscaper, you can't do any other work in this association without approval from the whole board of directors. Or and the so,
1: designated group, maybe a committee, okay. or there may be a sublimit, like anything that's under $5,000, you can go and make those independent determinations. No different than certain managing right. agents on right. site having that authority.
0: The point being that that's going to be defined in that overarching maintenance contract so that when you're on those landscape walks and other things come up, approval is only going to be given if it meets those standards. Correct. Yeah, and I think that's an important uh, factor. On that, um, I would suggest most board members and even managers don't understand that point very well or don't think of that. Right, I, I, I don't see that given consideration. So. And that's
1: why you yeah. need attorneys to review yeah. this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, not I think self-serving. It is. It's nope. to
1: protect the client.
0: I, I agree with you. And I think <laughs> that that's, uh, that's an important element. And so hopefully we've illustrated that.
1: Anything else that you'd like to add? No, yeah, you nailed it.
0: All right. Well, really appreciate your time and your insight on this. That's really helpful. And uh, I would just encourage our viewers and listeners to check out other episodes of The Uncommon Area.